1970, the British government enacted the Equal Pay Bill. Mrs. Pankhurst and her suffragettes of 70 years ago could only dream of many of the provisions of this new act. It makes sex discrimination illegal in the fields of employment, education, services and housing. In the vacancy columns from now on, there will be no such thing as women's appointments. To keep within the law, employers must make it clear that jobs are open to both men and women. It gave employers five years to phase out separate rates of pay for men and women. Now, the optimistic take is that this was a massive victory for feminists. It's illegal to pay women less for doing the same work as men. Great. The more pessimistic one, though, is that although women might have won that battle, they are still losing a much bigger war. Because since then, gender inequality in the labor market has been stubbornly and depressingly persistent. In 2019, on average, women earned 60% of what men did. 60%. In this special episode of the IFS Zooms In, we're going to hear about why that gap is so big and what might make it smaller. I'm Samaya Keynes, economics columnist at the Financial Times. This podcast is describing some of the findings of the IFS Deaton Review of Inequalities, a multidisciplinary project exploring the causes and consequences of inequality in Britain, funded by the Nuffield Foundation. First, we're going to hear from Alison Andrew, Associate Professor at Oxford University. She's one author of the review chapter, Women and Men at Work, which asks, what exactly is contributing to that enormous gap in earnings between men and women? These gaps really open up around the birth of a first child and then remain for a really long time after the birth of a first child. Then I'll talk to Christine Farkerson, a senior research economist at the IFS, about whether cheaper childcare could help. I think it's really important to remember that it's not just about constraints and it's not just about the economics of deciding whether or not your job is financially worth it to you. Preferences play a really big role here too. Finally, Alison and I will be joined by Lucinda Platt, Professor of Social Policy and Sociology at the London School of Economics and a member of the Deaton Review panel to discuss radical solutions. That doesn't mean that women who are thinking that it's in the best interests of their child to work part-time necessarily want to be low-paid, to have a career that doesn't develop, or to end up also doing most of the domestic work at home. First, a not-so-fun fact. On average, women in Britain work 16 more minutes per day than men. That includes all work, cooking, cleaning, childcare, as well as paid work outside the home. Women work more, but altogether, they earn a lot less. I started by asking Alison Andrew, senior researcher at the IFS, so what? Why should we care that women earn less than men? Well, in a really straightforward way, it means that women have lower living standards than men. So if we take single women, particularly single mums, they typically live in households with lower household incomes than single men. And then within even heterosexual couples, a lot of research has found that if men bring in the majority of the income, that translates into men consuming the majority of the household resources or a disproportionate share of the household resources. Earning more means more control over the household's budget. Earning more means more power. 
So we also know that low earnings and low experience in the labor market can leave women vulnerable to economic dependence on men. So an extreme example of that might be that it might become harder for a woman to leave an abusive relationship if it's difficult for her to make her own way economically. A third reason the earnings gap matters to economists is that it suggests that there could be an inefficiency. Now, in theory, if a bunch of people leave work or take relatively low paid work, that might be their choice. But from an economic perspective, the fact that it's disproportionately women leaving work means that it might be quite an inefficient choice. Well, I think there are very direct consequences for the aggregate efficiency of our economy. So if you have a situation where a lot of highly skilled, talented women are dropping out of the labour market, then that's a huge loss of potential talent that could be put to good work for everybody. If you accept that the gender earnings gap is a problem, then your next question should be, why is it still there? Why do women earn less than men? Now, you might say the patriarchy, and sure, but let's try to be a bit more specific than that. Historically, part of the answer seemed to be that women were less educated than men. Now, that still begs some questions. Was it that women genuinely had fewer skills or did their worse credentials give employers an excuse to discriminate against them? Whichever one of those it is, over time, as women have become more educated, the earnings gap has fallen. In fact, almost all of the reduction in the earnings gap over the past 25 years seems to be associated with this improvement in the education of women relative to men. So over the past quarter century, you know, everyone's educational outcomes have improved, but particularly so for women who have completely closed the educational gap with men. So women are now more educated than men on average. And if we account for this fact, we see that the overall gender gap in earnings has barely budged. So that suggests that other changes in the policy environment, for example, changes in childcare policy or changes in parental leave, have not been overwhelmingly successful at bringing down this gender gap. Now, there is one exception. Among people with at most GCSE-level qualifications, it does look like a higher minimum wage shrank the gender earnings gap. That was among the very lowest earners. It affected more women than men. But if you just think about highly educated women and compare them with highly educated men, these earnings gaps have been very persistent. Big picture then, today, differences in the share of women with a university degree do not explain the earnings gap. You need to go deeper. If you're trying to diagnose today's problems, one way is to ask where exactly this earnings gap is coming from. Is it that women are less likely to be in paid work at all? Or is it that they do fewer hours of paid work? Or is it that they are paid less for working those hours? Now, the tragedy of this podcast, as I'm sure you will agree, is that we can't show charts. But there are some really good ones in the chapter that Alison co-authored. And they describe how the gap comes from all three. Women are less likely to be in work than men. They work fewer hours and they are paid less. But in the UK, it looks like a particularly large contribution comes from the fact that when women do paid work, they work fewer hours. That's relative to other factors. This this lower working hours thing seems to be more important than the fact that women are less likely to work than men and that they're paid less than men. But it's also comparing the UK to other countries. 
So in the UK, the fact that women work fewer hours than men, conditional on them doing some work, is a relatively bigger part of the explanation. In some other countries, it's more that women are just working for pay at lower rates. What, then, is stopping women from working longer hours? Well, another way of diagnosing this problem is to ask when this earnings gap emerges. Is it there as soon as women enter the workforce? Or could it be that something happens later? What about a small, hungry, crying, needy something? So these gaps really open up around the birth of a first child um, and then remain for a really long time after the birth of a first child. So, you know, the sort of overall importance of children in explaining these gaps seems to be growing over time. Again, podcasts aren't the place to go crazy on numbers, but humour me. Before the birth of their first child, around 95% of women work for pay. The year after birth, that falls to 80%. And it just doesn't recover for the next 10 years. Something very similar happens to the number of hours worked. They fall a lot and then they just stay there. Exactly. And that's in huge contrast to the patterns for men whose working patterns appear kind of completely unaffected by becoming fathers. I asked Alison whether there was some kind of quantification of how important the arrival of children is in explaining this gender earnings gap. Well, actually, I think that some of the best estimates here are not for the UK, but are instead for Denmark and Austria. And so their recent evidence has suggested that more than 80% of the overall gender gaps can be explained by these child-related factors. Now, this is a large and persistent form of inequality. Reducing it, or or even deciding whether it's a problem, means answering a key question. Is this behaviour being driven by preferences or constraints? Is it that women are choosing to do less paid work, and to do work that tends to get paid worse? Or are they being pushed into it? Now, first, there's the question of biological constraints. Is this mother nature? Fathers cannot breastfeed. Well, a couple of things here. I think... In the first instance, just the fact that these gaps are so persistent. So you see them happening straight away, but then they're pretty much the same when a kid is 10 years old. And I don't think there's any kind of biological reason why a mother is better suited to care for a 10-year-old than her male partner. You know, another point here is that we actually see remarkably similar child penalties between biological parents and adoptive parents. And so that that kind of would seem to rule out some biological explanations. Now, in a perfect world, parents would have a child. They would make a choice about how to organise the job of looking after it. They would think about the costs of paying for childcare compared to how much they could lose if they stepped back from work and did the job themselves. Their own preferences would come into it, how much they wanted to be with their kids, what was best for the child, that kind of thing. And in this perfect world it would be just as easy for a man to make the decision to step back from paid work as it would be for a woman. And in this perfect world, parents would understand perfectly how stepping back from work could hurt their long-run earnings prospects. And, of course, they would have the option of borrowing to cover the short-term costs of childcare. It doesn't come cheap. Now, this perfect world sounds wonderful and not like the world we live in. 
Now, obviously, some people are very lucky and what they want to do with the perfect information that they have coincides exactly with what they can do. But some people aren't so lucky. They may not have perfect information about the effects of pulling back from work on their long-run earnings potential. IFS research has shown that 20 years after the birth of their first child, mothers earn 30% less per hour than fathers with the same education. And about a quarter of that is because mothers were more likely to be working part-time and so didn't see the same pay progression. Now, parents might know all this, but they might still be constrained. Well, I mean, obviously you have to pay for childcare in the here and now, and the returns to work happen over a very long period. So obviously you get, you know, you get your paycheck right now, but we know that there's very, very strong returns to experience in the labor market and particularly to working full time. And so if women are kind of forced into taking a career break that they don't actually want to take, or they're kind of forced into taking part-time work for a while, then that's going to reduce their earnings, not only in the short term, but over the much longer term as well. And because it's hard to kind of borrow against future earnings to pay for childcare, that is a very kind of classic example of of a market failure. It also looks like the kinds of jobs that mothers do are different to the types that fathers do. Again, that could be because of choice, or not. In fact, if we look at the types of work that men and women do, they often look quite different. So in practice, women often do quite different types of jobs to men. So that might be in terms of occupations. So for example, lots of women work in low paid occupations like social care. Women are more likely to be working fewer hours, working part time and work in different types of firms. And so it's not really sufficient to say that gender earnings gaps, gender pay gaps, kind of quote-unquote explained by differences in these types of work because the fact that we see differences in the type of work that men and women do might itself be the result of a kind of unfair system that's disadvantaging women. An obvious example here might be if a woman's passed over in the hiring process, she's not able to secure the same type of job as a man. Another example might be that gender inequalities within the home, for example, might mean that women feel constrained to look for work that's closer to home, look for work that's more flexible, and therefore they can manage it around childcare better. And all of these things will result in women doing different types of jobs than men. And that's an important contributing factor to the overall gender gaps that we see. You really can't conclude from the fact that women do different jobs that they're not constrained in their choices. It could be that managers expect less from mothers and so don't stretch them or that the process of bargaining with male partners is leading to restrictions. But of course, it's also really important not to assume that everything is the result of discrimination. There's another really powerful force at play here, and that's social norms. A study from 2012 found that around 40% of British adults agreed with the statement, a woman should stay at home when she has children under school age. That share was pretty much the same across men and women. Looking across countries, it seems that the more people agree with that statement, in general, the higher the long-run earnings penalty associated with having children. Alison pointed out another striking fact in the data. So I think I found particularly striking how little these child penalties varied depending on 
the prior work arrangements of the couple in question for heterosexual parents. So, you know, you might think that there's a little bit of a gender gap that exists even before people become parents. And one explanation could be that, you know, the man's earning a little bit more. It just makes sort of sense for him to keep going with his career. His partner takes a bit of a step back and, you know, that can explain like how these gender gaps open over time. But if we dig in in our data and we split couples by whether the man was earning more before becoming parents or whether the woman was, we actually see that these different couples react in remarkably similar ways. So it doesn't really seem to matter who was earning more before. Regardless of that, the woman always takes the much bigger step back from paid work, whilst men's careers almost always appear remarkably unaffected. Now, this line between social norms and preferences might be a bit fuzzy. Is it that women prefer to pull back from paid work, social norms just reflect that? Or is it that social norms are pushing them back? I asked Alison about this. I completely agree with you that this is a very fuzzy area and nothing's particularly clear cut. My own view is that if you examine people's preferences for almost anything, so if you look at preferences for what you spend your money on, how you spend your leisure time. You know, these are all influenced by our social environments. So I don't think there's this very clear distinction between preferences and social norms. It's certainly true that a large number of people in the UK and in most other countries do hold some quite conservative ideas about gender roles. And then it might be true that women and men feel social pressure to abide by those gender roles. So for example, women might feel stigmatized for missing school pickups. Men may feel stigmatized for asking for flexible working arrangements, for taking paternity leave. Whether they're looking at subtle social pressures or people's individual preferences, these factors are a nightmare for policymakers. Imagine you're a government and you bend over backwards to make it easier for mothers to go into work. You say, hey, let's subsidize childcare. But if it's social norms driving people's behavior, then you might just find that people carry on doing what they were doing before. So you just spent a lot of money, but not changed anyone's behavior. Before we return to Alison later, let's explore that idea. Let's explore that policy so often cited as the key to unlocking women's potential, cheaper childcare. We'll hear from Christine Farquharson, another IFS researcher and a childcare expert. I asked her what we knew about whether expensive childcare was really holding mothers back from paid work. What we see in England is actually the majority of mothers, and indeed the majority of parents, are already in paid work. Around 70% of mothers with a preschool-aged child have some sort of paid job. So this isn't a case where the majority of mothers are just sitting around and waiting for the government to come and provide them with free childcare. The question that we're left with is, well, okay, what about those 30% of mothers who don't have a paid job? And if you ask them what it is that's influencing that decision, around half of them will say that if they had an all singing, all dancing, super affordable, super high quality, super accessible, super brilliant, perfectly matched their needs childcare system, that that would shift their decisions about whether or not to take a job. So it's a real glass half full, glass half empty story, because on the one hand, 15% of mothers, that's a, that's a pretty big number. But on the other hand, I think it's really important to remember that it's not just about constraints and it's not just about the economics of deciding whether or not your job is financially worth it to you. 
Preferences play a really big role here too. And some mothers, particularly those with the very youngest children, do say that they actually prefer to look after their children themselves, even if not all of the time, but they don't necessarily see that full-time childcare and a full-time job with a very young child is something that they personally feel is right for their families. And so the government has much more scope to intervene and much more ability to intervene on some of those constraints and things like childcare costs. But tackling those preferences and what families view as right for themselves and their child, that's traditionally something that the government has steered a little bit more clear of. At the budget in March, the government decided that expensive childcare was a problem locking mothers out of work. They announced a major reform of the childcare system. Before, working mothers of three and four-year-olds could get up to 30 free hours of childcare a week. The government's reform will expand that offer to children older than nine months. Here's Christine. The government's motivation here is pretty clearly around getting parents, and particularly mothers, back into work. And to some extent, that does look like it might be the case. The Office for Budget Responsibility, which is responsible for scrutinising the budgets in the UK, estimates that these free childcare hours are going to bring about 60,000 parents back into paid work and create additional hours equivalent to roughly the same amount of, of working hours. Now, that sounds like a lot, and in some sense it is. But it's also important to put this in context of what parents are already doing and what parents are already paying for in this market. If you take all of the additional childcare hours generated by those 60,000 new parents in paid work and by the parents who are working more because of this reform, that adds up to about a sixth of the total number of childcare hours that we expect the government will be paying for on the back of this reform. Put that another way, around five-sixths or 85% of what the government will be paying for with these free childcare hours is helping parents with the cost of something that they would have bought out of pocket anyway. So those labor supply effects, those new parents coming into work, it's not that it's insignificant, it's just that we're starting from a baseline where already most parents with preschool-aged children are working, and already most of them are using some form of childcare to look after their kid while they do. Clearly, the OBR thinks that the risk I mentioned before is real. The government might direct lots of cash towards parents, but without affecting their behaviour very much. And if their behaviour doesn't change, the earnings gap between men and women won't fall. Effectively, the policy will mostly just be a big transfer from people without young children towards working parents with them. And it'll be an expensive transfer. The government could try to be stingy and not subsidise the places very much, not spend that much cash. But that brings other risks, like the possibility that nurseries will just ignore the policy and not offer parents the subsidised spots. Now, advocates of this kind of reform say, look, don't worry, the reform will get people to do more paid work and it won't be that expensive because people in work will pay more taxes. Here's what Christine thinks. So one of the most popular positions to take on childcare reforms is that they're going to pay for themselves. You can see why that's pretty appealing for politicians. It means that they can spend a lot of money and make a lot of voters very, very happy. And they don't necessarily have to worry about what that does to the tax burden or to the deficit because they, they write that off and they say, oh, it'll pay for itself. Now, with the reforms that we saw in the budget, 
that pretty explicitly doesn't seem to be the case. The government currently spends around four billion pounds per year on the free entitlement. Uh, it's planning, once these reforms are fully rolled out, to spend closer to eight billion pounds a year. So it's a pretty hefty cost associated with expanding the free entitlement to all of these much younger children. One of the reasons that we see that is because it's actually pretty hard for government subsidies for childcare genuinely to pay for themselves in the sense of higher tax revenues to the government. If you think about it, you have in England a ratio for one-year-olds of up to three children per every adult. For two-year-olds after the budget reforms, it's now five children per every one adult. But that's actually not a lot of children, not a lot of parents' wages to go into paying the wage of the person who's in the room looking after those children. And so you have to make some pretty heroic assumptions about the amount of tax that each of those parents paying for the childcare will be paying to the government in order to get to the point where the taxes that those three or those five parents pay add up to enough to pay for not just the wages of the childcare worker in the room, but the mortgage, the rent, the utility bill, the food costs, the management, the regulation, all of the other stuff that goes into delivering high quality formal childcare. Now, some people would look at that and say, okay, but that's not really a fair comparison because you're taking the taxes that parents are paying in one year, comparing them to the cost of childcare in that one year. But really what we're buying here is we're keeping people engaged in the workforce and that has longer term downstream benefits. That certainly can be true. And in particular, if you're going to be coming back and working full time, that is associated with some pretty good things in terms of wage progression and promotion, getting recognized in that career, starting to earn more over the rest of your life. The challenge, I think, for this reform is that most of the estimates we've seen so far suggest that the parents who are brought back into work on the back of these additional childcare hours are mostly going to be working on average part-time hours, on average about 16 hours per week. Unfortunately, the research that we have in the UK suggests that people who work part-time are more or less locked out of all of those positive long-term benefits. They don't particularly get pay rises. They don't particularly get promotions. They don't particularly see that career progression. And so those long-term dynamic benefits of bringing them into work a year or two earlier part-time are not as large as they would be if we had people who were working full-time. And that, again, makes it more difficult for you to look over somebody's life cycle and say, ah, yeah, well, because we got you in those few years earlier, you're going to be earning so much more 10, 15, 20 years down the line that those later tax revenues are going to offset the childcare costs today. The fact that it doesn't pay for itself doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing this. The government does lots and lots of things that don't strictly pay for themselves because they increase social welfare or because they serve other aims. But we do need to be realistic about what it is that we can expect the childcare system to deliver and what the government should be willing to stump up in order to pay for that. In a best case scenario, you'd have such a radical reform that it would help mothers move from part-time work into full-time work so that they would get these long-term benefits and therefore pay more taxes. But that's not a guarantee. Now, there is another argument that you often hear in favour of these reforms. That's that reforming and expanding childcare is actually not just helping parents get back to work, it's also yielding rewards much further down the line. It's boosting child development as well as helping parents. 
This is a classic argument that politicians love to make, that we're going to invest in the early years and we're going to get a double dividend. We're going to get lots more parents back into work with all the benefits that has for gender inequality. And we're going to do brilliant things to support children's early development and reduce some of the socioeconomic inequalities that we see already evident at the start of school. That is a lovely situation to be in. And there's really good research from around the world that suggests that childcare certainly can get mothers back into work. And it certainly can do really good things to support children's development. The challenge is there are not so many studies that show childcare systems really effectively doing both of those things at the same time. That's partly down to resources. If you want to deliver a childcare system that's really high quality, really nurturing, really supports children's early development, and at the same time is flexible and affordable and accessible enough to be there to help parents work the hours that they need and want to work, you're going to be spending an awful lot of money to try and do that. But partly it's also down to fundamental questions of design. If you think about a nurse who works a really early shift and has to get up in the middle of the night to go to the hospital and start her job, what does a good childcare system look like for that family? What does a childcare system that supports that mother in doing her work, but also supports that child to develop and learn and grow, how do you do both of those things at the same time in those circumstances? And our system is kind of littered with case studies like this. There's sometimes a tendency to think about childcare as being, you know, it's, it's eight till six, core working hours, job done, and what we need to do is, is worry about the quality and what's happening in those 10 hours. But there's all kinds of questions about flexibility and access and where these settings are located. And even beyond that, there are questions about what is good early education for children and how does that vary by different ages? What might work really well for a three-year-old or a four-year-old might be too long of a day or too much stimulation for a much younger child. And indeed, in England, what we've seen when these things have been evaluated is that our childcare system at the moment is pretty underwhelming in getting mothers back to work, but it's also pretty underwhelming in supporting children's early development. And so if we're going to try and do this big reform and big expansion of government-funded childcare, but we nickel and dime and do it a bit too much on a shoestring, that resource crunch is just going to make it even harder to achieve one of these aims let alone both of them at the same time. Right. If you're going to intervene in the childcare market, do it properly. A huge thanks to Christine. And now, to build on that for this final section of the podcast, we're going to go back to Alison, and we're going to bring in Lucinda Platt. Lucinda is a professor of social policy and sociology at the London School of Economics. Alison, Lucinda, hi. So, We've just heard from Christine, I guess, talking about some of the reasons to be a little sceptical that expanding childcare subsidies massively would substantially change the gender pay gap. What is your take? What is your immediate response to that? Are you more optimistic or or more pessimistic? Alison, why don't you start? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there's sort of important dynamics on two sides of this. So both If we think about these norms, we think about preferences, we think about how they might evolve over time. A lot of evidence suggests that policies that push a large number of people kind of outside of the status quo can change norms in sort of broader society, but that can take a while. So we might not expect all the benefits of a particular policy to be realized straight away. 
And over time, given policy might look more impressive than it does at the beginning. That links into a point that, you know, it might be that marginal small policies are not enough. We need bigger push policies. We need policies that kind of radically shift a large number of people's behavior. So what did you make then of Christine's point that there was potentially this trade-off between what was best for the child and what was best for maximizing women's employment? I agree that a lot of the evidence points to the fact that very long hours in institutional childcare may not be beneficial for children. And likewise, I think for parents' well-being, like very, very long work days are not necessarily beneficial for parents' well-being. I don't think that this should be about creating a system where to work means to work sort of 12, 14 hours a day in very kind of what Claudia Golden calls greedy jobs, but it's about creating the infrastructure to let people do a regular workday. Another point to make is, you know, even if there are these potential trade-offs, who is it that's doing the childcare at home? There's not just two childcare providers here, the institutional nursery and a mother. There's often third childcare provider who is a father. And perhaps a lot of this comes down to, at some point, fathers are just going to have to do more childcare take a larger share of the care work within the home in order to make progress on this problem. Right. So even if there are these trade-offs, who should be the one responding to them? Lucinda, what's your take? Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the issue of the trade-offs is seen as a trade-off between the child development and mother's labour supply. Now, we think we need to think more about, OK, what, what benefits child development is one question. And then how is that facilitated in a way that fits with parents need to earn? And to think about the both of the parents. So we might think, okay, and there's a trade-off between a child development and father's labour supply. So it's not that that isn't a, a fair point to make. It's how do we get to a position where we frame it in that way? I mean, we see so clearly in our analysis that Father's labour supply doesn't respond at all on average to becoming a parent for the first time. And so the fact that all of that adjustment is happening by the mother within a heterosexual couple tells us a lot about who's bearing the brunt of this trade-off. Okay, I think I already have a flavour of what you're going to say in response to this. But the big question I have is whether you think that these inequalities are driven by preferences or constraints. Lucinda, how do you think about that question? So preferences may well be contributing to what we see, but that doesn't mean that women who are thinking that it's in the best interests of their child to work part-time necessarily want to be low-paid, to have a career that doesn't develop, or to end up also doing most of the domestic work at home. So the association between preferences for caring for a child and that justifying low pay is not one that is necessary. So I think both matter. But if there's nobody else to care for the child, then that's definitely a constraint. Or if a partner chooses not to, actively chooses not to, then that's going to be a constraint. But I think we need to think about preferences for what and why does caring for a child, why even does taking time out of the labour market then consign you to worse pay in the life course, worse pension prospects, greater risks of poverty in, in later life? We often take these assumptions for granted. You know, if you, if you have an interrupted career, then definitely you should be paid less later on, despite the fact that you've been doing one of the most valuable things somebody can do, which is looking after a child. So I think we need to think more about our assumptions around um, the implications of exercising your preferences. 
I suppose the argument, though, is that if you take time out, then you lose out on skills and experience, and that means that that holds you back in the labour market. Or taking a part-time job means that realistically you just can't respond to that emergency thing that comes up out of hours. And there are some jobs for which you just need to be able to respond to that emergency thing. And so I guess it's it's not just about you know, discrimination. There could be real factors that mean that dropping out does affect your future pay in, in a real way. Claudia Golden's work for the review looks at how women's earnings actually catch up as they move through life and as their children grow up and leave home. She's looking at higher educated women. But she finds that by a certain point in later life, they're catching up. But who are they catching up with? They're catching up with women without children. So mothers are catching up with women without children. They're not catching up with fathers. Fathers retain that premium. And this suggests that it's therefore not just about the human capital that's consigning women to lower pay in, in later life and the consequences of motherhood that contribute to, contribute to them shifting that career. It's something more fundamental, again, about the nature of women's careers and the nature of the labour market and how it responds to women. And I think that begs the question, if more men did take career breaks, took part-time opportunities, would we see the part-time penalty reducing over time? If men demanded flexible working, would employers be more conducive to allow flexible working without the associated career penalty? How nice that would be. Alison, Lucinda, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's depressing to think about how the Equal Pay Bill was such a great achievement, but how much further there is to go. The reasons women earn less than men are complicated. They are embedded into our norms and their institutions. But it's always worth questioning our assumptions about the status quo. That's it for this episode. If you're interested in the evidence gathered as part of the IFS Deaton Review, you can find it at ifs.org.uk forward slash inequality. Huge thanks to Alison Andrew and Christine Farquharson of the IFS and Lucinda Platt of the LSE. I'm Samaya Keynes, economics columnist at the Financial Times. Alex Catling was our audio producer. Thank you for listening.